from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 29th. Today, the latest attempt to take down Obamacare. Learning from past special prosecutor reports on presidential conduct and life imitating art in Ukraine. So I would say as someone who's watched the ACA now for eight or nine years, the law has proved extremely resilient. Paige Cunningham is a health policy reporter for The Post. She's been on the Affordable Care Act beat covering Obamacare for nearly a decade now. You've seen attack after attack, whether through the courts, whether through legislation. There was, of course, the major challenge to its constitutionality back in 2012. The question is whether Congress has the constitutional power to enact the individual mandate. It survived that for the most part. In 2015, there was another major Supreme Court case. Case number 14114, King versus Burwell. There was a challenge to requirement for employers to cover contraception. There are now 500 Hobby Lobby stores. There was, of course, the multiple attempts in 2017 by Republicans on Capitol Hill to repeal and replace the law. The Health Care Freedom Act repeals the core pillars of Obamacare. But through it all, we've seen the law change in small ways, but its basic major expansions of health coverage through Medicaid and through the marketplaces have stayed intact. And now you see this latest effort to chip away at it. That latest effort happened this week, and it came in the form of this court filing by the Department of Justice. The DOJ essentially said, we're not going to defend any part of the Affordable Care Act, which would have huge sweeping effect if the whole law is struck down. It's going a step further now by saying the law's coverage expansion should go to its Medicaid expansion, its subsidies for people in the private marketplaces, its essential health benefits for people. The DOJ statement was prompted by this big lawsuit brought by several dozen Republican states. And right now, that suit is moving through the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas. So what the states are arguing is that because Congress has removed the penalty for lacking health insurance. Congress, by the way, repealed that individual mandate in 2017. They're saying that was sort of the linchpin of the entire reason that the health care law is constitutional, according to a 2012 decision by the Supreme Court. The court goes on to rule that Congress does have such power under the taxing clause. So they're saying because that penalty is gone, the rest of the law must fall. But I think the reason you see these Republican-led states bringing this challenge is, politically speaking, Obamacare has been a big punching bag for them for a really long time. You still see a lot of holdout Republican states that have refused to accept its offer of Medicaid expansion. And so I think after Republicans in Congress failed to repeal and replace the law, you saw a lot of Republicans governors say, well, hey, we're going to try to take a punch at it by bringing this lawsuit and we're going to see if we can undermine the law in this way. That if they say that they brought down Obamacare, that would be a big political win for them. Right. I think that's the only venue that they still see to repeal and replace the health care law. And so now the Department of Justice is 
I think, surprising a lot of people by weighing in and saying like, oh, we actually agree with that. Since Congress got rid of part of the law, we should just get rid of the whole thing. Right. So, of course, it's the job of the administration to defend laws that were passed by Congress. And so I think a lot of legal scholars were really taken aback when the administration said, we agree with all of the arguments brought by the states that not just the pre-existing condition protection should be struck, but the entire law should be struck down. And I think that is surprising to a lot of people from across the political spectrum because my understanding is that a lot of people, even a lot of Republicans, like the parts of Obamacare that involve covering people with pre-existing conditions and covering people up to the age of 26 and that those parts would get dismantled, too, if if the Trump administration had its way. Yeah, I think that this is really kind of throwing meat to their base. It's been crazy watching this as a health policy reporter over the last, gosh, since 2010 when it was passed. Overall, you've really seen a shift from the Affordable Care Act being a liability for Democrats. Uh, They're going to be looking to go after it even harder. It was pretty unpopular when it was first passed, and there were a lot of hitches in implementing the law that the Obama administration ran into. With the website not working as well as it needs to work, That makes a lot of supporters nervous because they know how it's been subject to so much attack, the Affordable Care Act generally. But it's really shifted to a point now where it's become a liability for Republicans. So from about 2010 to really 2017, Republicans made it a huge campaign issue. They promised to repeal and replace it. And then when they finally held the majority in the House, the Senate and the White House in 2017, they underwent this huge dramatic effort to try to repeal and replace it. The law is collapsing. The insurers are pulling out. People can't afford it. The deductibles are so high, it doesn't even feel like you got insurance in the first place. Which crashed and burned. Republicans then tried to kind of back away, not talk about it as much. That's when you saw Democrats really try to harness it as their own political issue and turn it back on Republicans. And so it's been really interesting to see that total shift to now Democrats are the ones who are eager to talk about some ongoing challenges with the law. The unity of our House Democratic members was a very important message to the country uh, that we are very proud of the Affordable Care Act. The law has made some huge strides forward. We've seen about 21 million more Americans get health coverage under it. It certainly has not completely closed the uninsured gap in this country. And there are ongoing challenges for consumers in the marketplaces. But it's definitely striking that nine years in, it's still such a political hot potato that there's no consensus at this point to even try to fix it. Let me just tell you exactly what my message is. The Republican Party will soon be known as the party of health care. Why is President Trump and his administration doing this now? Well, it's one of these things that, like a lot of things Trump does, it looks pretty hard to explain. But I think what we do know is that health care has been a topic that Trump really wants to 
to to claim that he won on. Um, he ran on repealing Obamacare and on his first day in office. In fact, I remember after the inauguration, like the first thing he did was issue an executive order, which directed all of his agencies to look at ways that they could peel back any part of the law that they possibly could. And then through that next year of 2017, he spent a lot of time kind of boasting about this new great healthcare plan that Republicans were going to come up with and repeal and replace the ACA. And of course, you saw all of that kind of falter in a particularly notable moment where John McCain gave his infamous thumbs down, which basically meant that the Senate wouldn't have the votes to pass a health care bill. And Trump really hasn't seemed to want to forgive the senator for that. After he passed away, he still brings up John McCain very bitterly. And so I think you can tell there are signs that that he kind of ruminates over this still. And he's just really angry that Republicans in Congress weren't able to deliver on all of these big, bold promises that he had made. The only difference between now and the other administration is that we're administering Obamacare very well. So we're, we've made it better, but it's still horrible, no good. Uh, it's something that we can't live with in this country. How are Democrats responding to this so far? This is like the best gift that <laughs> they've been given, I think. I mean, they were, you know, pretty disappointed with the findings of the Mueller investigation. And so you saw them pivot really quickly when the filing came out on Monday. This has been a total winning issue for them. You're going to hear them hammering this a lot. How are Republicans in Congress dealing with this? They're trying to hide from reporters, I'm pretty sure. This is something I, I vehemently disagree with. Senator Susan Collins, a moderate of Maine who's facing a re-election fight next year, has been critical of it so far. Lisa Murkowski is someone else to watch, possibly Dan Sullivan. This is a position that is not great for Republican moderates in difficult races next year. And I hope that the courts do not go along uh, with what the Justice Department has requested. So right now, this is being looked at by the Fifth Circuit in Texas, correct? Right. What are the chances that it would actually get to the Supreme Court? Well, that's hard to say until we know how the Fifth Circuit is going to rule. I will say I, th I think it's hard to imagine, as conservative as the Fifth Circuit is, that it would agree that the entire health care law would be struck. But if the court were to go so far as to strike the whole law, I think that would make it very likely that the Supreme Court would grant, it, grant a hearing. But I think unlikely that people need to worry about losing coverage anytime soon. A lot of this still has to play out. And it's it's likely that the courts would grant a stay given the huge impact of the ACA ultimately being struck. If this were to end up in the Supreme Court again, how do you think that might play out? What's different now is we have two conservative justices placed by Trump on the court. However, that might not really change where the court would land on this. And that's because Chief Justice John Roberts is actually the reason that the ACA was upheld back in 2012. And he is the one who wrote the majority opinion. And he found that it's constitutional, that the entire ACA is constitutional because the government has the power to tax people. And he said that this penalty for lacking coverage is a tax. 
he's actually the origin of this entire argument for why Republican states are now saying that the whole law should be struck. Um, So he would really be the one to watch, I think, if this case got to the Supreme Court. He definitely has shown an unwillingness to try to to try to overstep Congress or try to dramatically change legislation that Congress has passed. So it would be really interesting to see his response to can the rest of the law stand now that the individual mandate is gone. So for people looking at this and wondering if they're still going to have health care in the near to medium term future, they don't need to be worrying just yet. Right. I would say Obamacare has proved to be an incredibly resilient law. Given all of the political attacks and many, many times we really thought in the past couple of years it actually was going to be repealed. And then time and time again, it, it, it wasn't. You know, this law has had a really huge impact, not just on people who get coverage through Medicaid, get coverage on the individual marketplaces, but certainly it touches on virtually every single insurance product that people buy now. Paige Cunningham is a health policy reporter for The Post. On Thursday, a federal judge struck down a plan from the Trump administration to bypass Obamacare. The White House wanted to allow for new health insurance plans that wouldn't have to meet the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, but also providing fewer health protections. A U.S. District Court judge in Washington ruled that those new health plans would be illegal. He called the attempt, quote, clearly an end run around the ACA. It's like the ghosts of special prosecutors past, you know, coming, <laughs> coming forward to tell us why these things happen and how even they struggled to deal with them. It's been about a week since we heard the official news. The Mueller report is finished. The Office of Special Counsel investigating the president's 2016 campaign has submitted its findings to the Justice Department. But we haven't seen the report yet. We've seen the attorney general's four-page summary of the report. We know that the full report is nearly 400 pages long. But for now, we can only imagine what's inside, how it's structured, how it's written, and what kind of conclusions it makes or doesn't make. Carlos Lozada, the Post nonfiction book critic, he has also been wondering what the Mueller report will look like. And so while he waits to read it like everybody else... He's actually gone back to read other reports, big, super detailed accounts of past investigations into presidential misconduct. So I read the special prosecutor's report on Watergate, the Irvin Committee report on Watergate, the Iran-Contra independent counsel report by Lawrence Walsh, and the Ken Starr report on the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. So, you know, just some light bedtime reading. (laughs) Did you actually read the whole thing for each of these? I always read the whole book. Yes, yeah, so yes, I did. Yeah, these are and very, very long reports. Yes, these are huge. And they don't read fast either. They can be very dense and very, very prosaic. But then sometimes they just become very sweeping and dramatic. 
Carlos says that these dramatic moments were the thing that most surprised him from these past reports. And they offer a glimpse into what we might see from the Mueller report. Every once in a while, the authors sort of veer off from the relentless marshalling of facts and start giving us these sort of warnings about how we in the future can avoid these sorts of problems again or why they are going to always recur. Hmm. Can you read a couple of those moments? Sure. One that struck me was from Senator Sam Irvin, who was the North Carolina Democrat, who was the chairman of the Senate Watergate. They all offer these independent statements along with the report. Uh, And so this is Senator Irvin's statement. Is there an antidote which will prevent future Watergates? If so, what is it? The Senate Select Committee is recommending the enactment of new laws, which it believes will minimize the danger of future Watergates and make more adequate and certain the punishment of those who attempt to perpetrate them upon our country. Candor compels the confession, however, that law alone will not suffice to prevent future Watergates. In saying this, I do not disparage the essential role which law plays in the life of our nation. As one who has labored as a practicing lawyer, judge, and legislator all of my adult years, I venerate the law as an instrument of service to society. At the same time, however, I know the weakness of the law as well as its strength. Law is not self-executing. Unfortunately, at times, its execution rests in the hands of those who are faithless to it. He goes on to say that no one is fit to participate in politics or to hold public office unless they have two characteristics. The first of these is that he must understand and be dedicated to the true purpose of government, which is to promote the good of the people and entertain the abiding conviction that a public office is a public trust, which must never be abused to secure private advantage. The second characteristic is that he must possess that intellectual and moral integrity, which is the priceless ingredient in good character. Hmm. So his basic point, right, is that, sure, we can recommend all these laws and all these new regulations and ways to strengthen institutions, but in the end, you have to elect good people. You have to elect people of integrity. And that's something that comes up in a lot of these reports where they say, look, yeah, we all love our checks and balances. But in the end, those are only as strong as the people who can bend them. To me, that sounds more like a philosophical, political treatise than it does part of a report that's supposed to recount facts of an investigation. Right. That's what was, to me, sort of surprising about reading this. But even the ones that are written by prosecutors have these moments as well. The Watergate Special Prosecution Force, which is a great name, in its concluding observations and recommendations of its report, makes the point that it is not just about looking for crimes, right? That that's, that's part of what they're doing. It's an important part of what they're doing. But there are bigger challenges here. They say Watergate should not be analyzed merely in the context of each individual abuse of power that prosecutors were told to investigate. If Watergate was an insidious climax to recent and hitherto subtle historical trends, the formulation recommendations must begin with the simple but basic observation that democracies do not survive unless elected officials do what they're supposed to do and citizens maintain vigilance to see that they do. But I think that one of the risks in having these sweeping statements in these reports 
is that it makes them sound more political, right? Like with all of these investigations and then with all of the reports recapping the investigations, that there is a concern that they become hyperpartisan and that they become sort of a takedown of the president or a takedown of the of the administration. And I wonder if that in some ways is a flaw of some of these reports, that they really make it sound like we believe that the president and his people are bad people. The only report that does that is Ken Starr's report on <laughs> on the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. You mean that it veers too far in that well, direction? Well, actually, see, the first sentence of that report basically says Clinton should be impeached. So the first sentence of the Starr report as required by Section 595C of Title 28 of the U.S. Code, the Office of Independent Counsel hereby submits substantial and credible information that President William Jefferson Clinton committed acts that may constitute grounds for an impeachment. Huh. That is the opening sentence of the Star <laughs> Report. Not a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. You know? And then later, you know, they walk it back. They're like, look, you know, it's not our job to, you know, that's up to the, the legislature and all this. But but that's how they kick off, right? There's There's not a lot of ambiguity there. What's kind of funny about reading the Star Report today, actually, there's nothing funny about reading the Star Report today. It's a lot of it is really, really sort of revolting. Well, because that was a big criticism of the Star Report Mm -hmm. at the time and even more so now is that it seemed in many ways to revel in like all the gory details of Mm -hmm. Clinton's affair and that it it. It, it was just a bad look for the prosecutors. But what's what's weird about it is that they keep on apologizing for it throughout the report. They say, look, unfortunately, you know, we have no choice but to get into the nitty gritty of Clinton's sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky because the way that he's tried to worm out of this, you know, forces our hand. But these reports usually begin with this sort of prefatory statement about how you know, we're not going to weigh in on the matter of, of impeachment. That's, that's not up to us. And yet they, they almost feel this duty to warn future generations that, like, you know, we're going to screw up. There are going to be more Watergates. There's going to be more, more on Contras. And they emphasize that criminality is not the only thing you have to be worried about. Lawrence Walsh in the Iran-Contra report, you know, he, he makes that point about, about President Reagan. I'm just going to going to read that for a second. President Reagan created the conditions which made possible the crimes committed by others by his secret deviations from announced national policy as to Iran and hostages and by his determination to keep the Contras together, body and soul, despite a statutory ban on Contra aid. So he's saying, yes, we didn't find criminal behavior on the part of the president. That doesn't mean the president did everything right. That he allowed other people to do criminal yeah, he's behavior he, on he, his he behalf. He created an, an enabling environment. And a lot of these reports emphasize how criminality, it's the only prosecutorial standard, yes, but it's not the only standard that should matter to us. So it seems like all these reports are pointing out recurring problems and risks with our democracy and our government, and that they don't seem to be getting better, right? Like nobody's looking to the Senate Watergate report or the Iran-Contra report and saying, oh, yes, like they pointed out that problem and now we fix that problem and we don't make that problem again. Like we just keep making the same problems over and over again. And so in some ways, like, is it kind of depressing to just be hearing about the ways in which the government demonstrates moral failings again and again? 
those were parts of these reports that I wasn't expecting to find. I wasn't expecting to read and really depressing at the same time, precisely because there's this Groundhog Day sort of vibe to them. You know, we, we keep finding ways to make a lot of the same mistakes over and over again. What I think does still ring true and does still appear to be a useful warning from these past reports is how easily our institutions, how easily our norms and laws that we think of as these great, you know, Madisonian guardrails of democracy can be twisted and weakened even short of criminality. And I think that's what some of these lawmakers and prosecutors felt compelled to warn us about in these past documents. You know, over the last two years, people have been waiting for the Mueller report. You know, this thing that's going to solve everything one way or the other. And, and we imbued it with so much power. We expected so much from it. And yet, reading these reports, you see that these prosecutors, they expect a lot from us, right? It's, the onus is on us, in the end, to, to keep this thing going, not on them. Carlos Lozada is a nonfiction book critic for The Post. On Thursday night, at a rally in Michigan... President Trump declared victory in the Mueller investigation. The collusion delusion is over. The special counsel completed its report and found no collusion and no obstruction. Democrats are demanding the release of the full Mueller report. In a new letter on Friday, Attorney General William Barr said that a redacted version of the report will be sent to Congress by mid-April, if not sooner. And now, one more thing about life imitating art. In Ukraine, the frontrunner in Sunday's presidential election is an actor and comedian. Volodymyr Zelensky is one of the country's biggest entertainment stars. He hosts a variety show on TV. He produces TV shows. And most interestingly, he stars in a TV show called Servant of the People, in which he plays a schoolteacher who becomes president of Ukraine. My name is Anton Troyanovsky. I'm Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post. Zelensky announced his candidacy on New Year's Eve on his show. And when it happened... A lot of people didn't take it seriously. It wasn't even clear how seriously Zelensky himself was taking his presidential run. But he zoomed to the top of the polls, and he's been leading pretty much all the polling since February. It has come to the point where 
Western diplomats in Kiev are having a hard time keeping straight what's fact and what's fiction. You watch this show and it's Zelensky running for president. It's Zelensky appearing in TV debates. It's Zelensky doing selfie videos in which he addresses voters directly, except it's a TV show. And now we have all that happening in real life. Zelensky, the real-life person, is running for president. Zelensky, the real-life person, is shooting selfie videos and developing a platform that is very similar to the platform of the character that he plays on TV. It even got to the point where Zelensky went on Instagram and said to his followers, let's build a dream team for the government you guys tell me who should be my foreign minister, defense minister, prime minister, and even who should be the head of the intelligence agency. So it's a very unorthodox approach, but it, it seems like a lot of Ukrainian voters have become so disenchanted with their political establishment that this kind of a tone, this kind of rhetoric really speaks to them. Anton Troyanovsky is the Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show and the work that we do here, we have a special offer for you, our Post Reports listeners. A 50% discount on an unlimited digital subscription, which means you get access to our website and our apps for less than a dollar a week. Visit postreports.com slash offer. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.